through Hunter. Um, and we're going to be considering uh, the, from the, uh, God's Word from the book of Ephesians this morning. So please do open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians or your scriptural journal you have. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under seats in front of you. The text we're going to be looking at is on page 977 in that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take that one home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, So if you're newer to our church family, we usually take this time to uh, have extended time hearing from God's Word, and so we move through uh, different parts of the Bible, often moving through uh, books of the Bible um, all together over the course of weeks or months. So we're a couple months into a series on the New Testament letter of Ephesians, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this early church in a town called a city of Ephesus, and we're at the turning point in this letter. letter this morning. So let's uh, read it and then pray together. Ephesians chapter 4, we're looking at the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's join our minds and hearts together to pray. Our Father, we're together coming to you right now in dependence. We want to be changed. We want to know you rightly. We want to think about reality correctly. We want to know ourselves better. And so we pray that through your word and by your spirit present with us right now, working in our minds and hearts, that you would help us to understand you. Help us to see who you are as your beauty is displayed in Jesus. Help us to know our own souls better. And we pray that your spirit would change us to leave here more and more like you in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one question that is always a pressing one to know the answer to is, at least for Christians, um, but anyone who has any interest in Christianity at any level, is uh, what should Christianity really look like in someone's life or in a community, community? And given what it should look like, How do we actually do that? How do we actually live the way in which we are called to live? So those are two questions. What does it look like and how do we actually pull it off? And those are two questions that many are asking today about Christians. And there are a lot of different answers being provided because there are a lot of different spokespeople representing Jesus and Christians today, either self-promoting or put forward in the public eye. And If you consider that and then you read the book of Ephesians, you will often see a massive disconnect. And so that's why it's so important for us to continually immerse ourselves in God's Word, especially a book like Ephesians, to know how to actually answer these questions. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What should it look like? And how can we actually do that? How can we actually become like what we're supposed to be. So many people would say they they give an answer that's maybe political in orientation, uh, or they'd say, well, what should Christians look like? Well, apparently they should look like hypocrites, or they should look like uh, relationally ugly, 
uh, or politically aligned to one party or another in modern-day America. And so many reject Jesus and Christianity for those reasons, because of the answers to those questions. But Ephesians Ephesians shows us what real Christianity should actually look like and how to actually do it. So we're at a turning point in the letter of Ephesians, which gives us a great opportunity to answer these kinds of questions. We're calling the series in Ephesians the gospel for all of life. And actually, the two-part movement of the letter of Ephesians uh, shows this. The first half is all about the gospel, who God is and all of His grace for us in Jesus. And the second half is how that gospel, this good news of God's grace to us in Jesus, how the blessings of salvation He gives us affect all of life and are relevant for every moment of life. So if you want a key phrase to summarize each half of the letter of Ephesians, one way you could do it is by looking at the opening statement of each half. So, for instance, look at the very beginning of Ephesians. Right after the greeting, verse 3 is the key introduction to the first part of the letter, and really it's a great introduction to the first half. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing or spirit-given blessing in the heavenly places. So, the book opens by saying God, is to, God the Father is to be praised and blessed and celebrated and honored because of all of the Spirit-given blessings He's given us. He has blessed us in Jesus Christ with all of these blessings. Then He starts listing them, like we've been chosen by God and forgiven by God through Jesus, and we've been adopted into His family, and we've been given the Holy Spirit, and He's made us spiritually alive, brought us from being a living dead person, spiritually dead, to being awakened by His grace. So that's the first half. And now when he opens the second half of the letter, this turning point, look at verse 1 of chapter 4 again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, therefore, in light of these blessings God has given us in Christ by the Spirit, in light of who this triune God is and all of His grace and love and mercy for us, therefore, here now is how we are urged to live differently. Here's how we should walk. Walk is a metaphor for the way we live life. It's an ancient metaphor for referring to the, the course of our life. So, here's how this gospel message, therefore, should transform our lives. In other words, here's what real Christianity should look like. Here's what it must look like. And here's what it can look like by God's grace. So the first half's about the gospel, second half, how it's worked out in all of life. And the language of this text would say we are now called to walk worthy of our calling. So now this text that we've read here shows us what Paul means by this. So this answers three questions about walking worthy of our calling. First, why does this matter? Second, what does it look like? And third, how do we do it? So, why it matters, what it looks like, and how to do it. First, why does it matter? The key phrase we're considering is this one that just noted here, walk in a manner worthy. So, walking, this ancient metaphor for living, it's about a new way of living, and it may matter more than we realize. So, I think the best way we can get a sense of why this matters is by just slowing down in verse 1 and looking at every word. So, 
Let's walk through this. The first verse in the letter here is a turning point, and the first word is a key, therefore. So this is like a hinge. It's linking the first half of the letter with the second half of the letter. And here's what this word signals. It's saying, therefore, in light of the incredible grace that God has given to us in Jesus as we trust Him, therefore, in light of these blessings that God has poured out on us like a rushing waterfall, this then is how you are to live differently in light of it. So the first half, blessings. The second half, how we live differently. And he transitions with this word, therefore. Therefore, in light of all of this, here's how you must and can live. So here's why this matters. Because the way into a joyful, powerful, transformative, real Christian life is by holding on to both halves of this letter and keeping them in the right order. So here's what I mean. What happens, so just remember we've zoomed out, looked at both halves here. What happens if you only care about the first half of the letter of Ephesians and you basically ignore the second half? You know, whether it's Ephesians or just think about your life in general, the first half of the, that aspect of the Christian faith, and you ignore the second half. Well, some people live as if they only have the first half of the letter. And what happens? Well, you start thinking that God doesn't actually care about how we live, that God doesn't actually have authoritative opinions about every aspect of our lives. We can start thinking that because of His grace in chapters 1 through 3, we can live however we want. We don't need to put effort into fighting sin or pursuing love or pursuing unity together. And over time, your vision of God's grace actually can become cheapened and powerless. What happens, on the other hand, if you neglect the first half of Ephesians and you become a second half of Ephesians kind of Christian? And that's mainly where you live, it's mainly what you love, and you functionally neglect the first half. Well, this happens when we just focus on obedience and we neglect the motivational power of God's grace to actually pull it off. You may be very intense about obeying God, but you've lost the sense of wonder that He would rescue a disobedient person like you, right? You've lost a sense of thankfulness for His moment-by-moment grace and forgiveness. You've lost a sense of wonder that God would even take your best works and still need to and still graciously forgive all the impurities in them. And over time, your Christianity can become little more than moralism. And here's what happens. If you do a good job in your own self-estimation, you become prideful. And if you fail the next day, you become depressed. And if people around you fail to measure up to the standards you think Jesus has for them, then you get very judgmental and critical of them. That's what happens if we don't hold both of these halves together. And you can see, you follow those trajectories, you can find pockets of modern Christianity that look just like one of those two, right? And the order is also important. We don't just keep both of them together. We have to keep them in the right order. God does not come to us and say, Read Ephesians 4 through 6, then you'll get the blessings of Ephesians 1 through 3. 
He doesn't say, transform your life and then I'll give you grace. He doesn't say, make your life look worthy of the gospel and then you can get on in the blessings of the gospel. No, it's the opposite. He comes to us with lavish grace. His grace started before we were even born, the beginning of this letter said, right? He chose us before the foundation of the world. His grace is coming at, it, at us from His heart. So He says, therefore, in light of your grace, in, in light of the grace that I've given you, in light of being adopted and forgiven and receiving the Holy Spirit and being made alive by the Spirit's power, in light of this, now here's how you should live and can live and must live. So if we get the order wrong, what, we, what happens then is on a kind of day-by-day, moment-by-moment, kind of functional way of living, we, we base our acceptance before God upon the measure of kind of sanctification that we can accomplish. In other words, transformation or the amount of obedience we do. So we basically feel accepted to the degree that we feel obedient. Rather than feeling fully accepted once and for all by the blood of Jesus, and then therefore under God's smile, living a transformed life. So, if we get the order wrong, we'll either end up in pride or despair. We also see that this all matters by sensing Paul's tone here. Do you you sense this? This idea of a transformed life is an urgent matter for him. This says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He's, He's been kind of saying, remember, I'm in prison here for the sake of these things. I, a prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the commands that will come from this point on in the letter, and the rest of this letter will be filled with them, they, they all come to show us that the grace of chapters 1 through 3 has necessary implications for our lives. It affects our interactions with family members. It affects our interactions with friends, fellow students, co-workers. It affects our tone with clients and customers. It affects what we say when we're in the office and we get done with a call from a client and we hang up. It affects what we say to a co-worker about that person that we just got done talking to. It affects what we say together if you're married and someone comes over to your home and then when they leave and you shut the door, what's the first thing you say about that conversation you had, about that dinner you had? Is it critical? Is it negative? Uh, It affects the relationships we have in the church. It affects what you do with your spare time. It affects what you search the Google search bar, what you plug in there. It affects how you conduct yourself online your social media posts and reposts and shares and comments. So this, this letter corrects a compartmentalized view of the Christian life as though our salvation is kind of a, a one-time matter that we're received by grace and then therefore it doesn't matter how we live or that it's just Sunday, Sunday by Sunday. We come here, get encouraged, go home unchanged. As if it's maybe just a set of beliefs to affirm in our minds and then move on from. Now, this shows us that it's an urgent matter to live a life in every aspect of life worthy of our calling. Now, that word could throw us off, worthy. It's interesting, isn't it? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What does that mean? It may sound at first like we're somehow 
supposed to make ourselves worthy of God, which then would contradict everything I've been trying to say so far, right? Uh, But that's not it. At the heart of the first half of this letter is the reality that we are fundamentally unworthy of God, which is why we need His grace. You cannot be worthy of grace. That's the point. We are not worthy of God. We don't make ourselves worthy of God. In fact, we have to admit that we are not worthy. And that's the first step of receiving grace. So what does he mean here? This is saying something like how we'd use this word when we talk about a, a dignified office. For instance, we might say something to a president that he is now called to walk in a manner worthy of the presidency. He doesn't necessarily have to earn that high calling from uh, behavior, but he's called, once you're in that office, you are called to walk in a manner worthy of it, right? The idea is that becoming a Christian is an incredible blessing and privilege. We get in by grace, and then we're called to walk in a manner worthy of it. We're called to live up to this. We have a new identity as the people of God, and therefore, if we don't walk in a manner worthy of it, there's there's a disconnect there, just like when we see a president enter an office and doesn't walk in a manner worthy of it. We think, what is wrong here, right? And we've seen that throughout the history of our nation. And then he says, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So there's a calling that we've received. If you are following Jesus, your life has a unique and new purpose that you are now aware of. God has given you a new kind of life to live, and this means that your life matters. Your life matters to God. You matter to God. What you think, what you say, the tone that you use when you speak to one another in every circumstance and every interaction you will ever have matters to God. Now, that can make you feel like, man, that's a bit much, right? Is God kind of like big brother here? Um, But actually, the truth is this shows that the fact that God cares about what we say and what we think and what we feel and how we speak shows that we matter to Him. There's a great sense of privilege here that the Lord of all the universe actually cares about you enough to have an opinion about what you say and how you say it. That's incredible. And that that can give us a sense of uh, a dignified life. Um, And that we could actually please Him with these things. So that's why this all matters. So second, what does this calling actually look like? Well, verses 2 and 3 give us a summary of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. So I wonder, before you look at it, what would you say if someone asked you, what should the Christian life look like? What would you say first? So Paul, we kind of get to put him on the spot in a sense here. He's finally now at this pivot of his letter, this this turning point of his letter, and he's about to get very practical. And what is the first thing that he says this new life is supposed to look like? He doesn't first focus on behaviors, but on attitudes. He focuses on character. He focuses on virtues. And what are the very first ones he says? Look at verse 2. Humility gentleness, patience. We need this today, don't we? He has five characteristics. First, humility. Paul's been waiting to get to the implications for three chapters, and when he finally does, when he finally turns the corner to say, this is what it looks like now to live as a Christian, the very first word he uses to describe this is humility. This isn't a virtue in our, celebrated in our culture today. 
I mean, listen to how the heroes of our culture talk. There's often a lot of self-promotion. When they receive awards, there can be a sense of uh, even explicitly saying, I deserve this, Um, calling themselves the best and the greatest. Our culture doesn't value humility. It's actually just as countercultural now as it was for Paul in his day, which is why he mentioned it and why he thought he needed to mention it. Humility was not viewed as a positive character trait in Greece, in Greek culture at the time. It wasn't until Jesus actually came that humility became viewed as perhaps a virtue that we should cultivate, and it was embraced in a wide-scale way in, on the planet. Jesus showed that it was central to his own life and ministry. So what is it? What is humility? I mean, isn't that the pressing question this morning? If we're to be transformed by God's grace, and it's supposed to look differently, and the very first word that's used is humility, what is this? Well, here's what it is. It's really, it's about self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's really one of the greatest definitions of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So humility isn't about, you know, hating yourself. It's about honoring other people. It's about preferring others' preferences above your own and before your own. It's about preferring to defer to other people around you in life. It's about focusing your attention on other people and celebrating them and seeking to honor their thoughts and their desires. So here's the question for us. If I asked your family or your friends or your coworkers to describe you, what word would come first in that list? What would be the second word? And let's think about this word humility. Would humility show up in the top five? Would it be the first ten? If no one would use the word humble to describe you, and you are claiming to follow Jesus, there is something critically wrong, and there's a massive disconnect. Uh, so it means that we probably need to stop then and rethink, rethink our lives. Uh, rethink our attitudes, rethink our values. If that sounds kind of like a massive thing I'm saying, it is. Right? This is critical uh, for Christians to recognize that humility should be a primary mark of every single Christian's life. And we should be pursuing it, we should be longing for it, we should be repenting when we don't demonstrate it. So how do you get it? Well, you get it from immersing yourselves in God's grace. You get it by thinking of your life in light of the gospel. And in particular, just think about the cross itself. No one can spend much time meditating on the cross and being affected by the cross as we should be without being humbled. At the heart of the message of the cross is this twofold message. It's saying to us, we deserve that. We deserve to be publicly crucified, cosmically punished for our sins. We deserve that. We deserve judgment. And it's also saying at the same time that God in Christ loves you that much, that He would take that for you so that you don't have to. You are more loved than you could ever imagine. You you simply cannot think deeply and feelingly about that reality without being humbled. Next word, it's gentleness. That's also a neglected virtue in our culture, isn't it? Especially when we think about leadership. 
value leaders who kind of display power of sorts. People often think that they need to use force or manipulation to get what they want. Manipulation is kind of a hidden form um, of force. But when the Apostle Paul gave the qualifications for elders, for instance, for local church, he put gentleness on the list as a non-negotiable requirement for church leadership. So when God creates a new humanity and he says, this is what humanity is supposed to look like and this is what leadership is supposed to look like, a non-negotiable for elders in a local church is the virtue of gentleness. It's also Jesus himself. The one place in the Gospels where he explicitly said what his heart was like, he said it was gentle and lowly. He said, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. So what is gentleness? Well, it's not about weakness. It's about strength under control. It's about self-control for the sake of others in service of the benefit of others. So it's not about, you know, using bully tactics in conversations. It's about refusing to manipulate with our words or our actions or our emotions to get our way. Those are all ways of using a kind of force to get what we want. To be gentle means that we're careful with our words. We're measured with our words. We're often soft with our speech. How do we get it? How do we get gentleness? Well, the question like we saw before is how does the gospel of chapters 1 through 3 affect our lives that if it was to really enter into our hearts and begin doing its transformative work, how does that gospel make that transformation happen in our lives so that we become more gentle? Well, John Newton, uh, Newton, the pastor from the 1700s, put it this way in one of his letters. He explained how the Christian is to let the gospel work on the heart to produce gentleness and humility. So here's what he said. He believes, the Christian believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. So do you hear that? Not just, oh yeah, I believe the truth of the gospel. Yeah, Jesus died for me. Okay, now move on. I'm going to try hard to live differently. No, this is believing and feeling our own weakness and unworthiness, and then we live upon his pardoning grace and empowering grace. We live upon the love of Christ and this has a powerful effect, then, on the way that we treat others, on our tone toward others. It gives us a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. So if you are sensing this morning that you lack a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit, this is, how, this is your path forward. It is to block off time to get before the Lord and believe and feel and pray for the Spirit to help you feel your weakness and unworthiness and then live upon His love, live upon His grace and be thrilled by that and grateful for that. And then you walk away with this sense of deep joy and happiness in God's love. And then you look at other people and you're a little more calm. You're a little more focused on what they might want than yourself briefly on the rest of these. The next characteristic is patience. This is about being slow to anger. It's another common one that Paul lists in other places. It's about having self-control over our anger, so it's being slow to speak. Uh, one way to think about this is it means that you're 
You're thinking of how you can conduct yourself in such a way that you're not always the first or the longest or the loudest speaker. So here's a question for you. In groups that you're a part of, around a dinner table, uh, in a leadership group at work, um, think about your groups you're a part of and ask yourself, are you often the first, the loudest, and the longest speaker? Do you, do you often speak first? Are you the most speak first? Do you speak the loudest? Do you speak the longest? If so, you need to step back and ask yourself, why is that? Is it because everyone else there doesn't have the same ideas or better ideas than I do? Do I think that I really have the best ones that I've got to speak first, then I've got to speak loudest, then I've got to speak longest? Or, or what would happen if you actually viewed other people as maybe having ideas that you don't and more significant than yourselves and preferences that are, you'll treat as more significant than your own? Do you see how that might affect things there? Fourth, bearing with one another in love. You can bear with someone and not do it in love, Right? This happens when you just put up with someone and you let bitterness simmer in your soul. You roll your eyes. This is about bearing with people but not doing it in love. So what Paul's calling us to is to do it with a heart of love. And finally, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every church should be a place filled with people who are eager, eagerly committed to maintaining unity together. Now this doesn't mean that Every church should be filled with people who agree on everything. We can disagree about who we vote for and still have this unity. We can prefer different kinds of uh, gatherings or Sunday services together and still have unity. We can have completely different personalities and still have a unity in the spirit and bond of peace. Because this is about a unity that we have in Christ. It's a unity, notice that he says, that we maintain. Uh, We're not called to create this unity. It's there. God has given it to us when he brought us together around Jesus. And now we look around at each other, and we have the unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace, and he says, maintain it. Be eager to maintain this. And so that's the characteristic here. It means we have to pursue the kinds of attitudes, like humility and gentleness and bearing with one another in love, that produce unity. So if you disagree with something that someone around you says or does in church, what do you do? How do you handle disagreements in marriage or with your parents or children? Well, if you do have to address it, you can cover things over in love, and we're called to do that as well, but if you do have to address it, you do so with humility, acknowledging that you could be misunderstanding the situation, acknowledging that you have your own faults and weaknesses, you don't jump to conclusions, you do it with gentleness and calmness of tone, you don't manipulate with uh, verbal or emotional or physical force. You remain patient. You don't insist on immediate change. So now you may hear this list of virtues and think, this isn't really realistic. Maybe you're thinking, uh, especially gentleness, humility, this doesn't work in the real world. You you might be thinking, if I was humble and gentle, I would not get where I am today. I would not have gotten where I am today in my career. And so I just want to say two things to that. First, it's more important that we seek greatness in God's kingdom than in our culture. So, if these virtues put you behind in the kingdom of this world, that's okay. And second, sometimes even our culture does recognize the power of these virtues, doesn't it? I think this movie about Mr. Rogers is coming out soon with Tom Hanks. I was just watching this old, one of the old episodes with my boys a few mornings ago, and incredible. Uh, The power 
of a gentle, humble, calm spirit. I remember watching um, a video of him receiving the Lifetime Achievement Awards at the Emmys. I think he received it in 97. I watched it a few years ago. And to see the people as the, as the camera kind of panned out over people, just eyes watering, dabbing their eyes with tissues, and he's just up there being himself, right? And, and there are all these people at the Emmys just in silence with eyes watering because of the power of a gentle and calm and kind human being that treats people with dignity and respect and honor. So we, we do see, even in our culture, how this can be powerful. Even though it may exclude us from certain roles and might not get us ahead in certain jobs and careers, uh, there's a power to this kind of thing. And there's a power because this is who Jesus was, right? People that are like this are reflecting what God is like in Christ. So how do we get these characteristics? Uh, by the way, I'm not saying everyone needs to have Mr. Rogers's, Fred Rogers' personality, right? Um, this isn't cookie cutter, but there is something real that he was able to model that's powerful, that that's what this is talking about. So how do we get these? I mean, you can agree that this is maybe even um, okay in theory, but what about our own hearts? I mean, if you saw me yesterday morning, I mean, you would have seen the opposite of this several moments, right? So what about your week? What about your morning this morning? Was it marked by a pervasive sense of humility, gentleness? I won't ask you to raise your hands if not, but I think all of us with self-awareness would at some degree, right? Um, recently. So how do we do it? Well, Paul just called us to this kind of unity-seeking life together. And then in verses 4 to 6, he lists seven aspects of unity that we have as Christians that are givens. This is a foundation to our unity. And so as we embrace these foundations of our unity, these aspects of our unity together, this is part of the motivational power for us to pursue this with other brothers and sisters in Christ at a practical level. So let's walk through these. There's one body. So, by the way, you can see these seven, the repetition of the word one. There's one body, one faith, and so on. So, one body. If you're a Christian, your new identity is communal. You are part of the body of Christ. Paul's probably thinking of both the universal church of all Christians here and also, and also local churches that express the universal church of all Christians. So, one way to pursue unity with humility is this. Realize that you have a new identity and it's communal. So, if this is true, how does that affect how we treat one another as brothers and sisters? Well, it means that as a local church, we recognize that God has given us this great unity together, that we're not just a people who show up to a building once a week. We're not just people who attend Zionsville Fellowship. We are Zionsville Fellowship. We are a body and a family of believers. And so, that's a given unity. It's an identity statement that then has implications for how we treat each other throughout the whole of the week. We depend on one another. We, we seek out ways to be engaged in each other's lives and to serve one another. And what does this look like outside of our local church, being united with other brothers and sisters outside of our local church? Well, it means that we see all gospel-faithful churches as part of the larger universal body of Christ. And so we seek to express our unity in different ways. I do this personally by meeting with other pastors around the city. We also express our unity by you know, just reading and benefiting from resources and books that other believers have written throughout history around the globe. Just this weekend, a number of you women attended a conference together, um, 
a women's conference in the, in the city. And that's a way of expressing unity with women from other churches. As we pray for other churches and ministries and missionaries as a church, we're expressing unity and solidarity with brothers and sisters around the globe. So there's one body, and that encourages us to to pursue unity. Second, we have one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And together, we're viewed as God's temple with the Holy Spirit's presence among us. So we have this incredibly deep connection with one another because we share a deep connection with God Himself. So if this is true, that's going to have an effect on how we speak to one another as fellow uh, beings that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. An amazing reality if we viewed each other through that lens. Third, there's one hope. There's not multiple different hopes for Christians. There's ultimately one true hope, and it's the return of Jesus Christ to set all things to rights, to make all things new. It's the same hope that every Christian has and ever has had, which means that we may have all sorts of different discouragements, but we all share the same hope. We can cling to God's promises together. Fourth, there's one Lord, the Lord Jesus. There's not multiple lords and saviors. We're all seeking then to submit to the same, one and the same, Savior and King. And so we have this ultimate authority in common. We have King Jesus calling us to live a certain kind of life, and there's implications for every aspect of life, and we all are receiving the same marching orders as a whole. So we have a lot of differences, right? We look differently, different ages, different political strategies, different skin tones, different ethnic heritage, different cultural preferences, different personalities, different jobs, different seasons of life, different sexes, different sufferings, different blessings, and yet we're all united together with one singular Lord, King, who calls us together um, to seek unity together and to follow Him as our King. Fifth, one faith. This is referring to a set of beliefs that Christians unite around. There is a faith, or what Paul elsewhere calls a deposit. Eric mentioned that this morning from Paul's letters to Timothy. So now right away you can be thinking, but Christians disagree about all sorts of doctrines and beliefs, right? That's not very unifying. Doesn't doctrine divide? Um, And that's true. It can divide, which is why we need to see that Paul isn't saying that we agree on everything. He's referring to a central set of convictions, a core set of beliefs. We can call these first-order issues. These are the essential beliefs that Christians everywhere can and must be united around. They're the central truths about God and the gospel message. So from the very beginning, Christians recognized these truths. They put them in different creeds. We read them this morning as an expression of our unity together with other believers within these, this, these four walls, or how, how many do you count these walls, I guess? many walls, and around the globe, to the eight or so corners of the globe. So what's striking in light of our cultural moment is that it's common for some people to value unity at the expense of truth. Some say that everyone who claims to be a Christian or any church that claims to be a church should just unite together. You just take it at face value. Um, we're united, and, but, but Paul says we have a unity in one faith. There is a doctrinal core that we're united around, that our unity is around. We can't be united merely around the desire for unity. Uh, We have to be united around the faith. This is why it's important for Christians to know faithful gospel doctrine. 
It's why it's important for us to immerse ourselves in the book of Ephesians and other parts of the Bible where Paul and others explain central truths. And so here are two recommendations for us to grow in our grasp of truth. First, I encourage you to read through our statement of beliefs as a church family. So this was included for you in the news sheet this morning. Uh, So if you have that, even just pull it out right now and slip it in your Bible. I encourage you to read through that sometime this week. And these are beliefs that we unite around as a local church that clarify the essential truths, uh, what Paul would refer to as the faith, uh, that we unite around. And so we we have a lot there that's important for our church to be aligned around. It's actually pretty thin at another level, because these are just the essentials. I think the only exception to that would be just how we view the way that a local church should be ordered in terms of church governance or leadership. That's an important but secondary matter for Christians, but important for us to function well as a local church, which is why it's there. So I encourage you to, to read through that. If you're newer to ZF and you haven't gone yet to discover ZF, I encourage you to sign up when we make that available. We talk through and walk through these doctrines as well, and I usually say something like, if you read through this and you have any questions or uncertainties about anything here, please talk to us, please talk to an elder, because we do believe that what's written down in our beliefs are not secondary matters. Every Christian should be able to read that and say, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean every Christian has to be able to write it from memory um, or be able to articulate all of that, but we should be able to read that and say, yes, that's the God I worship. That's what it means to follow Him. This, this is true. These are the essential things that we believe. And the second thing I'd encourage you to do is to grow in your grasp of doctrine. So one small step to take would be to read a short book that, that explains central Christian doctrine. Uh, there's a great one I'd commend by Wayne Grudem called Christian Essentials. It's a really short book that just walks through 20 essentials of Christian belief and helps you understand them. So we have some copies on the center table out in the resource corner this morning. So before you leave, just grab one of those um, and uh, study that. And I'll add this side note. Our statement of beliefs show that beliefs are important for us to hold fast to. Um, These are doctrines that we believe, but we also recognize as a church that there are certain ethical standards that we also have to consider core and central as well. Even later in this letter, Paul will talk about how certain behaviors are incompatible with Christian confession. So in our culture, it's important that we affirm certain ones that many Christians are saying don't matter anymore, right? That we affirm things, uh, ethical standards on marriage and sexuality and the sanctity of life. So we've had different statements available throughout um, kind of our history as a local church, and we're working on clarifying these matters as elders as well, and we'll be communicating to you in coming months about that as well. But there are, there are certain ethical standards that we have to hold fast to as well. Six, there's one baptism. So the assumption in the New Testament is that everyone who follows Jesus is baptized. An unbaptized Christian would be an anomaly um, in the New Testament. So here Paul focuses on how baptism is part of our unity. And I love this. I mean, think about just baptism. It's this practice that Jesus himself did and calls us to that Christians have done for 2,000 years in all sorts of cultures. So when you follow Jesus and then uh, walk through the process of being baptized, you're baptized, you are entering into a sacred tradition that pictures unity with Jesus and his people. And it's an incredibly unifying act. So if you're following Jesus and have not yet been baptized, please do contact the office, talk to an elder or pastoral staff member. We'd love to talk to you about that. You know, the Lord's Supper is also unifying. We did that this morning. 
Um, You can think of baptism like entering the door, the front door of the house. You trust Christ and enter with this public profession through baptism. And then the Lord's Supper is like the dining table where we together regularly keep eating. You only have to enter the door once, but then you stay and you have fellowship, which, by the way, um, means that there is an order to these things. The order in the New Testament is belief and then baptism and then the Lord's Supper, and we should never mix those orders up. Um, I mean, if there could be a reason why maybe you delay baptism for a few weeks or months until it's available, but you're a, a Christian, but they should be happening pretty quickly um, in order. So I encourage you, if you're taking the Lord's Supper, for instance, have not been baptized, get baptized. <laughs> um, so that's unifying for us as a body. Finally, one God and Father of all, who's over all and in all and through all. When we become Christians, we become the Father's sons and daughters, part of a family, united under a Father. Well, time is up, so why don't we just note one more final comment here. Uh, this, is, this is the path of unity. These are the things we embrace, and if we really believe these things are united around these things, then we look at each other differently. We treat each other differently. And let's remember that the greatest power then for being the kind of people who are gentle and humble and bear with one another in love and patient the greatest power for that is the gospel itself. Seeing Jesus in his humility and his gentleness, how he went to the cross for us, bearing the weight of our sins, and how he's been risen from the dead, and he now even still bears with us in love. And he is incredibly patient with you and I every moment of every day. And so the more that we live on that grace and the love of Christ, the more that we will be humbled and gentled and calmed to treat each other differently. Um, So last week, if you were here, we saw in chapter 3, verse 14, that Paul prayed, and when he prayed, he said he bowed his knees, and we did that together. Uh, If you'd like, I'm going to bow my knees and pray, and you're welcome to join me. If you're able to and you'd like to, let's bow our knees together and pray. Father, we are so grateful that you haven't left us in confusion about your heart toward us. You haven't left us in confusion about the way that we can find relief and salvation and rest from our own sinful tendencies that enslave us. We thank you that you have set us free through Jesus and the Spirit. We thank you that Jesus, your son, was given for our sins to bear the weight of your wrath on the cross. We thank you that you have sent the Spirit to awaken us to your grace, to trust you and to be transformed. We thank you for your word that you've not left us in the dark about what it looks like to then be changed by your grace. We thank you that you've not left us without the power to actually live this life. So thank you for the Spirit's power in our lives. And we thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives as a local church family these years and decades, that you have been working in our hearts to make us have this expression of calm and gentleness and humility and patience. And so we pray that you would do that all the more. We need you and we need this. We fall far, fall, uh, far more short than we even know. And so we pray that you give us self-awareness where we lack humility and gentleness 
And we pray that you would convict us by your spirit and that the conviction would be a healing and joy-giving process as we receive your grace and rely on your love and experience your transforming power. So we pray that we would leave here encouraged by your grace and your word and your spirit's presence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to receive a benediction from God's word. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace. Love you all.